read this passage together. We'll pray briefly and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he, went, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. God, please give us ears to hear. Help us to not stick our fingers in our ears as you give us this word, as hard as it does sound. Help us to listen humbly, meekly, acknowledging, realizing that you are the creator, you are the king, we are the creature, we are your subjects. I pray that we would also trust your character, knowing that you are a good and loving Father, and that every command of yours, every command on the lips of your Son, is for our good. So help us, Lord, to trust you more this morning as we leave than we did when we came in so that we can follow you wholeheartedly, single-mindedly. We need your grace, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Last week, we uh, looked at this meal after the synagogue meeting. This leader of the Pharisees had Jesus into his home. And now... In verse 25, we're out of that Pharisee's home, and we're back on the road to Jerusalem. Okay? In Luke's gospel, this way en route to Jerusalem is actually a really significant thematic um, thread that runs through the gospel. It starts you know, in earnest in 951, where he turns his face like flint and heads to Jerusalem because he's going to die there, and he's telling his disciples that, and they need to follow him on that road. Um, but this 
road to Jerusalem is also associated with some other things, some, some other themes that are really important. One of which is that the way en route to Jerusalem is the place where the crowds follow and disciples are made. Okay, so you'll see this connection a couple different places. So as we shift out of that meal setting in a home and back on the road heading to Jerusalem, Jesus is once again placing the issue of discipleship front and center. So look back at chapter 13. You'll see um, the connection here. 13.22, you'll see another example of discipleship on the road. And it also leads well into our passage for this morning. So 13.22 says, And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So there's a note note of the, the way theme. He's on his way. And then watch the, the kind of things that are tied to it. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are, who are being saved? Like, how many, disciple, how many disciples do you have? How many people are going to be with you forever? And he said to them, let me tell you about discipleship because I'm here to form a new people, a new community. So strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the house, head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. So, the road, discipleship, and then in chapter 13, you can imagine that the question rises out of this, what sets a true disciple apart from a false one? I mean, come on, we we ate with you and you taught us and all of this. And he says, I never knew you. Well, what, what makes a real disciple? So here he is on the road again, and he's going to focus on discipleship again, and he's going to help us understand what sets true from false discipleship apart. So, we've read our passage here, and this is a hard passage, okay? Obviously, I'm married. I've got five little kids. I love my wife. I love my children. I can't even tell you. I just... I mean, I love them. You know, I just want to eat them up. I love them so much. Can't get enough of spending time with them. That kind of love. Like I just, I just flat out love them. Doesn't mean we don't have our days. We don't have our struggles and strife, but I am so thankful. I love my wife. And I love my kids, these precious little souls that God's entrusted to our care. I love them, and I'm supposed to hate them? I mean, what about all the other texts that talk about love for neighbors and loving your families and loving your spouses in Ephesians 5? Like, what's up with the contradictions in the Bible? What is Jesus saying here? What does he mean? I used to be afraid of this passage. Anybody in that category? I used to not like this passage. I tried to avoid it. Have you ever had passages like that where you read them and they just like really get in your kitchen and so you try not to think about them? So you try to avoid them. I don't want to be reminded of this passage. I don't like it. I don't want to have to deal with it. You know, out of sight, out of mind. Well, two problems at least that I had, I can identify one In part, I misunderstood it. So hopefully we can clear any of that off the table. 
And then two, I know that I did not know well enough the character of the one who spoke these words. And I don't know what your impression of this passage is, whether this is the first time you've read it or if this is the 500th time you've read it or anywhere in between, but maybe you also, I mean, mean, even this week I saw stuff that, you know, was really helpful and clarifying that I had never seen before. So maybe you also are in need of clear understanding of what these words mean and greater confidence in the one who spoke them. I think we always need more of that. So let's look at it together. There's an outline in the bulletin if it's helpful for you. The first point is that disciples hate. Just so that you know, this first point is going to be the longest point, okay? In case when we're done with the first point and you see five more, you're thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here till one. Um, That's possible, I guess, but not likely. Okay, so disciples hate versus... 25 to 26. Again, discipleship is in focus. And so you'll see on the outline, it's represented disciples. What does a true disciple do? What's, what's he like? What is she like? Disciples hate. Disciples die to follow Jesus. Disciples count the cost. Disciples renounce ownership. And disciples that are not disciples are not disciples. I know that maybe sounds like triple speak, double speak, whatever, but it, hopefully it'll make sense when we get there. Disciples hate. Now, large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. One thing is very clear just from the get-go. Whatever this does mean, it's not optional. If you come to Jesus, if you come to him and you don't do this, he does not say, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't take my advice, you'll really struggle as my disciple. He doesn't say, you know, if you come to me and you don't do this, you're not going to have as many jewels in your crown. He doesn't say, if you come to me and you don't do this, you'll be Christians, just not serious Christians. No, he says to the crowds, if anyone comes and does not hate like this, he cannot be my disciple. So let's not stand in judgment of God's word and decide whether or not we like something and shape it to fit our own sensibilities. But let's meekly, humbly sit underneath the words of this King of Kings and let His Word shape us. He is the potter, we're the clay. We can't soft-pedal this at all. Let's not try to mute Jesus' words. If you hear this message and you come away saying, oh, I I don't like that. I'm not going to do that. That's harsh. That's not what I signed up for. Then you will want to stop calling yourself a Christian. I'm not trying to be harsh here in, in the way that I'm saying this. I'm just trying to represent the tone of the text and take it seriously. And I'm speaking it to myself as well. 
If you're a member here and you hear this text, as long as I faithfully interpret it according to the intention of Jesus' words, and we all need to wrestle with that, okay? Be good Bereans and see if this is so. But if we are faithfully understanding Jesus' words and you say, no, it's not what I signed up for, then I would encourage you to resign your membership. This is serious. This is not optional. So we need to make sure we know what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying. You must hate your own family. And be sure to notice it because it's a key to interpreting all of this and not misunderstanding it. Notice he says, yes, and hate even your own life. That's really, really helpful to understand what he is saying and what he's not saying. So what does this mean? Oftentimes, I've heard this many times, what happens with this text is that people say stuff like this. Pastors sometimes, too. It just means that we can't love any of these folks more than we love Jesus. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying here. If we're to really listen to the point he's making. And what happens sometimes when they say that is, well, they know that's true. Nothing, we're not supposed to love everything as much as we love Jesus. So they dismiss this and move on. Now, that certainly solves some of the emotional struggle of such a harsh-sounding statement, but it doesn't totally square with the text. Plug it in at the end of verse 30, 26 and see if it works. So is Jesus saying, hate your family? Yes, and even... You know, you just can't love yourself more than you love Jesus. <laughs> that doesn't square with other things he says. That's weird. That's not what he says elsewhere. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Okay? So he's not talking about just loving people less than you love Jesus. Okay? Even though that's true and it's taught elsewhere, even in the passage that we read for scripture reading in Matthew ten thirty-seven. Okay? So what does this mean? I don't want to try to make this any harder a word than Jesus intended it to be. I think it's hard enough already, but we need to deal with and apply what Jesus meant. So we need to take care as we interpret this and not make careless assumptions of what we think he probably meant. Another typical answer that you might get sometimes from commentators or pastors is that hate means love less. Have you ever heard this? Okay. So, Romans 9.13, there's a challenging passage when Paul quotes Malachi 1, where it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Okay? Which is a hard pill to swallow. That's harsh. I mean, does it really mean Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less? Is that what it means? So, this week, I think it probably took about an hour, something like that, I looked at every reference to hate in the Bible. Okay, this word in Old Testament, New Testament, it's used almost 200 times. It was a very helpful little study, really helpful actually, because I finally felt like I had some resolution <laughs> as to what Jesus was saying. And um, there's some wonderful examples that really shed light on what he's saying here. So let me just share a few examples of what I found and uh, encourage you to pay careful attention to these because they're so helpful. I'm going to give you four of them, okay? A couple of them are quick. 
um, but some really helpful examples that will help us as we seek to understand and apply what Jesus says here in Luke 14 to our own lives. So first, turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 5. Anybody know where that is? That's the Ten Commandments. Okay? Pretty familiar ground. So Exodus 20, it's on page 77 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. Then God spoke all these words, saying... We'll look at verses 1 to 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Then look at this. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations... Of those who hate me. Now, the hating in Exodus 20, verse 5, he's speaking to the people of God. These are not the rank pagan Canaanites or the devil worshipers or something like that cursing God's name. It's those who claim to be the people of God who give way to idolatry and worship and serve created things and have other gods before God. So here's the point. Treating God as second or worse is called hating the Lord. Do you see that connection? Another example. Turn to 2 Samuel. Verse 19. Or I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 5. This context, you know, David's son Absalom had conspired against him and was seeking to overthrow him and usurp his throne. And there was a battle and Absalom was killed, right? And David mourned deeply for his son such that, I mean, it was, it was so bad, even though Absalom had been just a, a horrible traitor, it was so bad that those who actually won this battle, which was a good thing, mainly, they, it, says it, it says they stole back into the city like those who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And here's what Joab says. I'm not making commentary on what he says because he was at fault as well in the whole process. But look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. And, and here's a representation of how these words are used and what they mean. So 2 Samuel 19, verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. You've just hated us by the way that you've treated us. For you've shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Okay, again, no judgment on what he's saying. It's just the usage of the words that we're after here. The point is, David, you are loyal to those who reject you. And you reject those who are loyal to you. That's what he's trying to say. Two more. Flip to... Well, actually, you don't have to turn there. Proverbs 13, 24 is really quick. Just listen. He who spares the rod hates his son. 
but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, pay attention here because we're going to go back and forth with love and hate. So you got to, you know, be awake right now. Parents who don't discipline their kids as they should. And we all can struggle with this, okay? But when parents regularly neglect to do so because they feel some strong emotions of... Is it, I'm sorry. Do they do this because they feel some strong emotions of, of hate and disgust towards their kids? No. Not usually. In fact, oftentimes the sad truth is that the people who are punishing, disciplining their kids, they're doing it out of anger and they're hitting or they're spanking their kids <coughs> out of anger. That's not what this text is talking about. That's not biblical discipline. It's called child abuse. But this text is talking about disciplining, corporal punishment with a child, and it's called love. And if you neglect it, it's actually called hate. So the parents who keep saying one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, you know, and the words of warning never meet with real consequences. Why do they do that? It's often because they love their kids that they don't follow through on words of warning, right? That's what it feels like love. But here Proverbs is saying, no, you're hating your kids. Do they really hate their kids? No. But yes, in a manner of speaking, they do. Here's the point. If you refuse to discipline your child, you're turning your back on dealing with the folly, the rebel will, that will ultimately lead them down a self-destructive path. So you might be thinking that you're being loving and patient and kind, but you're really turning your back on him. You're hating him. You see, turning your back, rejecting what's best for that person, your child. Okay, one last one. Luke 16, 13. Um, a little ahead of where we are now. You, you've heard this text lots of times, but maybe have never put it into this context. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. What does that mean? Does that mean that if we really follow Jesus, we should emotionally hate money? No. That's not what it means. Money's neutral. Money is not inherently evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all sin, right? So what does this mean? It means you are to decisively reject money as your master because you can't serve two masters. So these texts are really, really helpful. Exodus 20, treating God as second or worse is called hating him even though you might give lip service to him being your God. Second Samuel, he was being loyal, or at least in Job's eyes, he's being loyal to those who reject him and rejecting those who were loyal to him. Proverbs, if you turn away from your child, you hate your child. And it's not that you have this emotional disgust with them. It's your turning your back on what's best for them. And then Luke 16, again, it's a decisive rejection of money as master, not an emotional, like, every time I see a dollar, you know, I just get angry, you know. What? No, that's not what he's talking about. 
So here's how one commentator said it. Hate is not primarily an affective quality, think affections, emotions, but a disavowal of primary allegiance to one's kin. You refuse to have your family as your primary allegiance. Jesus underscores how discipleship relativizes one's normal and highly valued loyalties to normal family and other social ties. Relativizes it in the sense that he alone takes that supreme place and therefore everything else finds its place under his lordship. I had a funny thing happen this week at Starbucks that might just help to illustrate what Jesus is getting at here. So there's this guy I met a while ago at Starbucks. He and his family moved here actually from the same town we came from around the same time and somebody introduced me to him. Okay. I don't think anybody knows him in here, so that's good. Um, so we've said hello and small talked a few times over the last couple of years. He stopped at my table to say hello. I hadn't seen him in a while. And so, you know, of course, um, small talk, you know, the summer question. How was your summer? You know, everybody. Okay, what else are you going to ask? Um, so how did the summer go for you and your family? He said, good. And he talked about his one child who was away for multiple weeks, going to camp here and there. And implying that it was a good thing that his son was a while for was away for a while this summer, and then he said, "Now I'm ready to send him back to school, right?" And he just looks at me like, "You know what I'm talking about? Like, don't you want to get your kids back to school and get them out of your hair?" He didn't, I guess, go that nuts, but he, you know, that's what he was saying. I did not nod assent. I was trying in a split second of small talk to not totally shame the guy. And yet I did not want to give a hint of agreement to his sentiment. So the point is, if I had flippantly laughed and said, (laughs) right, I would have betrayed my children. I would have hated my kids. Why? Because I would have wanted his approval and the comfort of our relationship more than I would want to be loyal to my children. So it was awkward and he felt it pretty quickly. But I had to hate him. Quote unquote, careful. (laughs) Because I love my kids. Does that make sense? I hated him in that moment. I was willing to risk the comfort and the future of our relationship. I know, maybe I'm blowing this up a little bit. For the sake of the point, but it's because I love my kids too much. I have a greater allegiance to them than to maintaining this guy's favor. I mean, Beth and I, obviously, I mean, you're probably like this, hopefully. Summer break comes around. Yes. School rolls around. Ugh. Hate sending him back. Okay? So I hated him. I hated his statement, the value behind it. I rejected it. I turned my back on it because I love my kids. 
You see the connections between that dynamic, which is just one example, and what Jesus is saying here. Now apply it to Jesus. Let's say, just let me give you a few kind of practical examples here. Imagine your spouse is not a believer because he's talking about hating, hating a spouse, hating children. There's other relationships as well. We'll talk about those later. But let's say your spouse is not a believer and he or she wants you to join him or her in denying Christ in sin, denying his lordship over your life. You must, in that moment, reject them, hate them, because you love Jesus. You're loyal to Jesus, and your allegiance to Jesus takes priority over every other relationship. So do you love that person? Of course you do. You don't stop loving them when you're hating them in this moment. In fact, you are loving them by hating them. Do you see that? It would not be love to cave. So just like you're loving your kids when you discipline them, even though in their eyes sometimes it feels like hate, to turn from that, they might like it in the short term, but nobody will like it in the long term. Let's say your believing spouse wants you to support tax evasion. Okay? You ne- Maybe this is a cheesy example, although I think this is very much... It's just... Okay, it's past April. Maybe that's not on the front burner right now, but I'm just trying to give some, some examples that are clear, and then you can apply it elsewhere. You need to hate your spouse in that moment, and that's actually the only way to love them. What if you are tempted to cheat on your taxes? Yes, and even your own life. <laughs> you see? It's the same thing all the way up and down. That's why that's really helpful to understand what he's saying about hating family when he says, yes, even your own life. If you are tempted to cheat, you need to hate yourself. You need to deny yourself. Take up your cross, follow Jesus. That could be costly, but it's worth it because Jesus is Lord and you're not. And it's really foolish to try to be your own master. So, You die to that impulse and you trust Jesus in the moment and you follow even if it costs you. So you can see how this is not hard to square with the kind of love that Jesus calls us to elsewhere toward the very same people. You can discipline your child and in their eyes maybe it feels like hate and you can hug and hang out with your child in the very same day. You could refuse to follow your spouse into sin in one context and affectionately pursue them that very same day. Do you see this? This has a gazillion applications. Again, take your own life. If you, let's say you have some illicit sexual desires. Who are you going to hate? Who are you going to reject and turn your back on and forsake? Jesus, because you love your sin? Or you, because you love Jesus. Do you see how this just brings it right to the center of everyday life? It is just like saying, if anyone comes to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's just saying that again in a different way with application to family. So, disciples hate. This is not just disciples love other things less. This is Jesus must have our highest allegiance 
And especially when it comes to choices, oftentimes we are going to have to reject, turn our back on, say no, precisely because we are saying yes, and our highest loyalty and allegiance rests with Jesus. So each and every one of those situations where there's temptation and there's a fork in the road, Jesus is saying, follow me, trust me, follow me. This is basic Christian discipleship. We need this. We need this. This is Jesus loving us. This is good for us. You know, another thing with this whole realm, when you're talking about family, sometimes we're tempted to use good things as an excuse to follow Jesus, to to, to not follow Jesus on the narrow road. Um, One commentator writes this, natural affections can undermine faithfulness to God and provide us with excuses to back down in our commitment. Quote, my family must come first. I must care for them. That could be, maybe, a totally legitimate statement. It could also be a smokescreen to save your life. So it gets at the heart of things. My family must come first. I must care for them. The hatred of family, quote-unquote, is a peace, is of a peace with denying oneself. So we can use good things sometimes, like a smoke scream, to hide our selfish, save our life impulses, our motives. So we need to hate our lives and even, quote-unquote, careful, these good things, because Jesus alone takes priority supremacy in our hearts as Lord. Um, think also, this, this is really serious, and we're almost done with this point. <laughs> told you it was going to be the longest one. Um, think of how this is a call to a new identity and to form your identity around the person of Jesus. Okay? For Jesus' audience, these relationships that he lists out would have been central to their identity, their belonging, their security. And so he is saying... Our identity, our family, our security is in him. He's forming a new family. Disciples, if you want to follow me, I'm forming a new people. So if you're going to come to me and follow me, this is what it looks like. Who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So our identity should not be found ultimately in our biological family or in our heritage nor in our social status or economic caste. See, in our day and age, so back then, first century, family was everything. It was your total identity and security and community. Sometimes in our day and age, it's less that. Family's not as much the, the kind of central identifier in our lives. And some people are very untethered because they've had really rough family situations and maybe they don't have a lot of support. Where do they get that sense of identity and and, and security and community? Well, friendships, work, that's their identity, some of those things, and elsewhere. Well, if you, in those moments of temptation where you are tempted to compromise in order to maintain that relationship because you couldn't imagine living without that person, that friend, that context. Do you see what I'm saying? This is where it comes to choices again there. Who's going to be the one in whom I find my identity, my community, my security? And so it comes down to choices and it's trusting Jesus or, and, and if you do, You're rejecting maybe sometimes these good things or temptations. Or 
you go after those things and you say, no, I must have this. I have to have this. I have to be in with this group. I have to be in good graces of these people. And you reject and you turn your back on and Jesus takes second place. You see how that works out? So, Matthew 10 is a very helpful parallel because he talks about everyone who confesses me before men. You're not ashamed. Don't deny me before men. I will deny you before my Father in heaven. I didn't come to bring peace. There's going to be divisions if people really follow me. He who loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Okay? So if you don't think I'm worth supreme allegiance, Jesus is saying, then you're not worthy of me. If you have a good or a God that you deem as greater than me, then don't call yourself a disciple. Okay? So loyalty, allegiance, first place, priority, supremacy must go to Jesus alone. No half-hearted discipleship with Jesus. Because here's the thing, we're going to be wholehearted somewhere. And so if we, if we will not be wholehearted with Jesus, it's because we're choosing to hate him and love someone or something else. So disciples hate. Another way to say this whole thing is that disciples die. Look at verse 27, second point. Wow. Okay, this will be a little quicker. Um, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Look at the progression. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. So it's one thing to come to him, but if you're really going to come after him, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after him. Okay, this, this road to Jerusalem certainly wasn't going to be a walk in the park for Jesus. And he's calling us, just like Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, again, this is not optional. Cannot be my disciple. But again, this is the path of life. Let's never think that this is a, a harsh word that's not loving from Jesus. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this is a call to die to the temptation that anyone or anything else that's smaller or lesser than Jesus is worthy to be our God. Okay? So disciples die to follow Jesus. Third, disciples count the cost. He gives two examples, two parables. Which one of you? Four. See that? That's the connection. He's going to give reasons why we should pay this cost. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? Or king will not first sit down and consider whether he can take on this coming army. So we don't have to spend time explaining this. It's pretty obvious. And the point, the cost is up in the previous verses. We've already looked at that. The point here is sit down. Don't make a hurried, snap, superficially emotional decision. Take stock, count the cost before you rise up for action. Jesus uses double parable, reinforces the point. It's like putting an underline under it. And a lot could be said here, but I just want to apply this in one direction in our witnessing, in the way that we share the gospel with other people, um, whether they be our own family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors or whatever it is. Can I encourage you to take people right here? If they really are 
interested and they want to they want to follow Jesus say, "Okay, that's awesome. He is the greatest savior. I just want you to know what it means to follow him. I want you to count the cost." Let's read Luke 14. Really? Help them understand this. Don't try to soften it. Help them understand it so they don't misunderstand it and have unnecessary, you know, barriers here. But listen to this. I heard one guy, one pastor say this one time, and it was so helpful. It's, it's kind of echoed in my mind many times since then. What you win them with, you win them to. If you present, if you and I present a soft, sentimentalized Christianity with no consideration of the cost, no, let's, let's say, a kind of Christianity that people will think from what you said that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to go better for you. No theology of suffering. Hey, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Maybe that could be a good way to say it if you really unpacked it, because it is wonderful. But maybe not until heaven. If you propagate a fire insurance religion, you know, hey, get out of hell free. If you are manipulatively minimalistic, hey, all you got to do is pray this prayer and you're in. Without talking about who Jesus is and what it means to really repent and believe and trust in him. Thinking, well, you know, if we just get him in the door, then we can talk about the fine print. Then we can talk about the cost, what it looks like to to follow Jesus after. Okay, I'm not trying to add anything. We're just talking about real faith. I'm not adding anything. We better not do any of that. I mean, Paul's pretty serious about that in Galatians. But we're just talking about real faith, the kind of faith that talks like this. I counted all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's how faith talks. So we don't want to perpetuate cheap grace, false assurance, and other kind of things we don't want to propagate. This applies to our children. Parents, this is a place to bring our children don't want to give them sentimental views or false assurance. Okay? People you know, our children in, if you're involved in children's ministry, whether it's a Awana or Sunday mornings or children's church, whatever, Sunday school classes. Okay? Disciples count the cost. We need to make sure we do, and we encourage those we're telling about Jesus to do the same. Now look at verse 33. Jesus summarizes, disciples renounce ownership. So then, none of you, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This is not really a new point. See, so then, he's summarizing here. He's stating the point in a different way. Same point, slightly different. Related application. Okay, so in the language of the, in, of the parable, count the cost of the cost, or you won't be able to finish the race. If, if you try to maintain lordship over your life, over your possessions, if you try to keep that to yourself... Rejecting Jesus' lordship over your possessions, then you can't be Jesus' disciple. It's just another way of saying the same thing. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're a disciple of Jesus. You're no longer lord of your life in any category, relationships or possessions. Jesus is lord. He's the owner of our lives. He's the owner of our possessions. He entrusts them to us as his stewards. We're the middlemen. So, does that mean that we all have to sell all that we have and live in cardboard boxes? No, but it does mean that we renounce ownership. 
of our possessions. Okay, same word is used. Um, I mean, Zacchaeus, he didn't give away all of his goods, but his goods, his possessions, he gave away half of them. And Jesus said, today salvation comes to this comes to this house. The point is, is he's trusting Jesus. Jesus became the owner of his possessions overnight. So disciples hate, disciples die to follow Jesus. Disciples count the cost. Disciples renounce ownership. And then verses 34, 35 might seem like they come out of nowhere. What does this mean? Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown out. What? I mean, in our day and age, sodium chloride cannot lose its taste. That's not even possible. But in the first century, in Palestine, salt was not so pure. Okay, it came from the evaporation from the Dead Sea. It's a mixture of salt and gypsum and some other thing called carnalite, whatever that is. And sometimes the sodium chloride could leach out and leave this substance that looked like salt, but had no saltiness. So what do you do with salt that's not salty? Salt, salt it to taste? No, it's useless. That's the whole point. You throw it out. Salt that's not salt is not salt. That's the point. So this is a very appropriate conclusion. Disciples that are not disciples are not disciples. There is a Christianity that looks like Christianity that's not really Christianity. So we need to know what genuine discipleship looks like, and we need to trust Jesus and follow him. He's warning us here because he loves us. So what does this warning, this exhortation, sound like in your ears? Can you hear this passage as good news? He who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to um, C.S. Lewis here, about done. He claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That is, I take it, the meaning of all those sayings that alarm me most. William Law, in his cool, terrible voice, said, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you have chosen instead. Those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism? Cocaine or art? Whiskey or a seat in the cabinet? Money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. Do you see what he's getting at? Some of these things are very good things. Even the good things. Father, mother, sisters, brothers. Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we, were, we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? So this text on the face sometimes appears hard and harsh, but it is good news from a good God and Savior. He loves us too much. Listen, he loves us too much to let us be satisfied with anything less than himself. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So when you're tempted to think that Jesus is a hard master, have you ever counted the cost of not following Jesus? Okay, the issue is not if you will lose all, but when you will lose all. Everybody's going to lose everything. You put your treasure there, you try to save your life, you will lose it. Good news. Lose your life for my sake and the gospels and you'll find it forever. Lose it now. Count all things as lost now. This is good news. So let's come to Jesus, maybe for the first time, some of you, and, and those of us who believe we need to keep coming. Paul said, I counted all things as lost for the sake of Christ. I continue to count, present tense, all things as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That is the way faith begins, the path, the journey with Jesus. And that's the every day of repenting and believing, turning aside the second things and trusting in Jesus as our treasure and our first thing. It's not an issue of if we will lose all, but when. So let's come to Jesus, hating, dying, continuing to count, renouncing ownership, and let's come after him and follow after him. Okay, and when you come to Jesus, this is something we also cannot forget. Know that he doesn't expect us to have the resources to build the tower or to fight the battle. That's not the point of those parables. You can't press the details. He's just saying you count the cost if you're doing these things. When you come to him, he has the resources. He died to give us the resources. So he says stuff like this, come to me. All you've got is weariness and heavy ladenness. Come to me. I will give you rest and then you can take my yoke and and follow. So don't ever count the cost apart from the cost paid on the cross. Don't ever count the cost apart from the cost paid on the cross. You and I, we don't have the resources. (laughs) But Jesus does. So it's to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory after we have followed Him on this narrow road. He's able to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, To him, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the only one to whom the glory, the majesty, the dominion, the authority belongs before all time and now and forever. Amen? We're going to close with a song called Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. And this is another Matthew Smith plug. Um, I remember back in Illinois when I was leading the college ministry there, there was one of our students who introduced me to Indelible Grace music. And this became one of our favorite songs as a college group. And if you don't pay attention to the words when you're singing a song, you might just not have this as a favorite song. But if you really want to follow Jesus and you pay attention to these words, this is a really rich meaty steak of a song. Okay? So I'd encourage you to chew on it as you sing it. Um, Pay attention to the words. And I encourage you again to make sure um, that you come back on September 9th 
uh, Matthew Smith's going to be leading worship that morning and then doing a, a little seminar for our church worship team as well as some other churches that are going to be involved and there will be that concert that night. So let's sing this song and think about this text that we've studied um, and pray that God would make it true.